This session is from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. Should we start? What do you think? We've got enough people now. There were two people about 10 minutes ago, so... But glad, right, we're just getting the sound going here. Glad, uh, glad you've all made it up here. Um, my name's Gavin Peacock. Uh, if you were in the uh, first session this morning, I spoke there. I've got uh, a, set, a breakout session here, what Jesus says about manhood, womanhood, and marriage, which I'm repeating this afternoon. And then tomorrow morning, um, I'm speaking on biblical manhood, uh, which is at the, the talk is actually a template for a book that I'm writing for, for men, um, Five Habits of Highly Effective Christian Men from 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, but it's for men and women to attend. Like you, you don't have to just be a man to, to come. Uh, so I encourage uh, women to be here too. Uh, mums who are bringing up uh, little boys and uh, uh, young single ladies that may be looking for what that biblical man might look like. Um, but today, uh, what Jesus says about manhood, womanhood, and marriage. Um, complementarianism is a word which elegantly describes the Bible's teaching that God has created man, male and female, equal in his image, uh, but that he has assigned to them different roles in the home and the church, so that the Godward responsibility for loving, sacrificial uh, leadership falls to the husband in the home and to biblically qualified men, not all men, but to biblically qualified men in the church. That's complementarianism. That's with an E, complement, uh, as opposed to compliment. That's compliment. That's a really cool shirt you're wearing there. That's a compliment, but complement, like we complete or fit together. And for most of church history, um, the complementarian view would have been the understanding of God's design from the scriptures. But in the last century, and particularly the last 50 years, a, a radical feminist agenda has inspired then egalitarian readings of the scripture. And so that egalitarianism says that men and women are equal in their value before God, so they're with the complementarians there. But they said there is no difference in the roles either, so they flatten the differences played out in the roles. And it would be uh, unwise not to recognize this notion has gripped our culture and then heavily influenced the church so that the culture has pitted uh, men and women against each other. Uh, that means that one side wins, the other side loses, and there's no togetherness and no teamwork and no harmony either. Men rule the world or women do. And I think we could say that in, in the age of so-called progress, um, the sexes are, are more divided than ever. Uh, boys do not know what manhood is. They do not. And many girls think they know what womanhood is, but the truth is they're just as confused as the boys. And, and this is rooted in confusion over sexual identity and an expression of sexuality which has rapidly accelerated in the last 50 years. And, and then, you know, we could all agree in the last 10 years even how quickly it's come upon us. But just a few markers for you, um, and, I, and I got this from uh, Al Mohler uh, and, and one of his books, but, but we, just, we didn't just arrive at uh, same-sex marriage or tr transgenderism just like out of the blue. He put some markers for us to, to, to think about. When birth control and legal abortion came in, sex could happen without the consequence of a baby. Okay? Sex became something you could just do. This made it easier not to keep sex within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. So it then facilitated the normalcy of cohabitation. IVF then has introduced uh, another option. You see, with the introduction of contraception, a man and woman can have sex without babies. With IVF, a man and woman can have babies without sex suddenly it becomes less normal for a man and woman in marriage as the context for a baby to be born. This then paves the way for marriage itself to be redefined and the normalization of homosexuality as a moral and acceptable choice. This then opens the door 
for two women or two men to have children through IVF or adoption. Now the family's been totally redefined. You see how the, the, the markers that have got us to the, this stage. So, it, you know, if you say that a husband is by definition a man who is married to a woman and a wife is by definition a woman who is married to a man, if you say with all the love in the world that it's morally wrong for two men or two women to be together, you, Christian, will be branded a bigot, you will be branded unloving, and you will be branded increasingly illegal as the law begins to change. And because uh, subjective feelings trump objective reality in our day and age, the next step, transgenderism, is rapidly propelling us towards a gender-neutral culture where six-year-olds can choose their gender. And we are facing the prospects. It's happening now with opposite sex being able to shower and wash with us in sports facilities. This happened in my own church um, literally three months ago. I had a, a, an email to the pastors of the church from one of the men in the congregation. I need some advice. My wife had just gone to the swimming baths with my three daughters. The, the uh, rec, uh, Would you say swimming baths in North America? I'm English. Uh, the recreation center where there's a swimming pool. Okay. And uh, he said, I've just, she's just taken the three daughters, 15, 12, and 10. And uh, they're in the change room. And a man was walked in there. He identifies as a woman, completely stripped off, naked, in front of the wife and the three young girls. She's gathered them together, hustled them out, gone straight to the reception and, and complained. And they said, sorry, if, if he identifies as a woman, we can't do anything about it. So that's the reality that's upon us. Biological males competing in female sports teams and against them in individual events. Over 70 different designations for gender on Facebook. I think it's gone up since yesterday, maybe. Um, people are being allowed to legally reclassify as a third sex, even calling themselves non-binary. So what we need is grace today because there are many people who are struggling in marriages or singles who desire to be married, if we're talking about marriage, or some who uh, are experiencing same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria of some kind, uh, some who are indulging even in some kind of sexual immorality now or in the past, and they're not maybe on the front line of the radical activists. So I think we need some pastoral wisdom. Uh, they've been caught up in it, and there's still an, a sin issue at stake, but they're not necessarily on that front line waving the flags. And we need to remember not one of us deserves God's favor, and all of us needs our desires redirected and reordered. So we need to keep the cross in view, because the cross levels us all and then lifts us to live like Christ in purity and then extend mercy to others. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So we need to ground ourselves in grace and in the security and identity of the gospel, and then we're going to have the right attitude as we engage in the battle around us and in the battle for our own sanctification. And we need to go uh, not to newspapers or magazines uh, to appreciate the grand design of God for humanity. You have to go to the Bible, which shows a better and a clear and a beautiful vision for men and for women, for masculinity and for femininity to the glory of God. So just for the rest of our time, I want us to be in the Gospel of Matthew. If you've got a Bible, just have it open to Matthew 19, some well-known words of Jesus. And maybe have a finger in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, because I'll just flip back there. Um, Matthew 19, verse 3 to verse 6. Um, and Pharisees came up to him, that's Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. 
so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So I've got five truths for us uh, this morning, five truths from the text. So I like to, you know, I like to do systematic teaching, but it's good to do like an expository teach from the text, and then you will be able to go away and see it right in there. You better pass it on to others or have it for yourselves. Five truths from the text today are what Jesus says about manhood, womanhood, and marriage. And the first truth is that Jesus' foundation on manhood, womanhood, and marriage is God's word at creation. It's God's word at creation. The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus here. He says they tested him. They tested him by asking him questions on marriage and divorce. So Jesus, what does he do? He appeals to God's word at creation. He, he answers, have you not read? This is his first thing. Have you not read? So Jesus, fully God and fully man, is a radically God-centered man, which means he's a radically word-centered man. Remember earlier in Matthew 4, when Satan tested him in the wilderness, what was Jesus' response each time to the devil's temptation? It is written. So when you are asked, when you are asked a question, or when you're tested on what you believe is right on the issues of sex and sexuality, and when you're thinking about how to define yourself, is your first thought, what does the Bible say? Don't, don't be afraid to bring out the, the Bible. And in our apologetics, sometimes we can think, if we bring out the Bible, people will immediately run away. They're already running away. The Bible is the only weapon we have. It's the sword of the Spirit. Bring it out. Let the Word of God loose. You don't know what God will do through it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written. It is written. It is written. So in the battle to recover biblical manhood and womanhood, the big, big issue at stake is an attack on the authority and sufficiency of the Word of God. I say sufficiency because many Christians and many churches will say, oh, we believe in the authority and inerrancy of, of, of the word. Ah, but is it sufficient? Because they say they believe in the authority of the word, then they go outside the word to dis define themselves and sexuality. It needs to be the sufficiency. The Pharisees are attacking Jesus. They appealed to other schools of thought, some of them somewhat scriptural, but their hearts and their application were wrong and they wanted to trip him up. So Jesus goes back to basics and his foundation for talking about man, a woman, and a marriage is the word of the creator at creation. He quotes from some of the very first words in the Bible, Genesis 1. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's referring back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. I'll just read 27. So God created man in his own image. You know this text. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So we often in the church, we have a, we have a good theology of redemption, but we need a good theology of creation, friends. We need a good theology of creation. You know, the big issue at stake in the early church was Christology. Yeah, you, the, the early church fathers. and Christology was the big issue. In the time of the reformers, it was soteriology. You know, what does it mean to be saved? So Christology, who is Christ? Reformers, soteriology, what does it mean to be saved? In our era, big issue of the day, anthropology. What does it mean to be human? And then the knock-on effects of getting that wrong bleeds into all sorts of other doctrines. So, so we need a good theology of creation. So that God made you. What an amazing thought. We don't ponder it enough. It should make us feel very small uh, and at the same time very honored. I mean, we didn't exist at one point. God gave us life at one point. He'll take it at another point. Um, we are totally contingent upon God. So we need to understand who's in charge around here. When the cancer hits or the earthquakes come or the assaults from the culture around hit you, uh, who's in charge? God's in charge, and he's in charge of your life, and, and he made you, and he tells you who you are and how you are to behave. This is our fundamental identity created in the image of God, male or female. Important for you to remember as a man or a woman, you're not made to do your own thing. You know that saying, saying you be you. You, be, you just do you, girl. You just do you. I'm showing my age now. I'm picking up on these kind of young hip phrases, yeah. but you do you. Well, you're made to be who God made you. 
you're, you're actually quite small, but you're invested with great honor because you're not the product of a chemical explosion or a series of evolutionary ch changes from amoeba to a, to a human. What, how is that happening? Is that, that's here, isn't it? That there? Is that better? Can you still hear me if I... Yep, okay. So we're not the product of that. Uh, we've been made by God in the image of God, knit together by God in our mother's womb. And so that means that every human being has value in the eyes of God. And that is important for us to remember for ourselves, but also when we're talking about distortions of sexuality and we're dealing with other people to give compassion and understanding. All people have worth because they're created in God's image. Only men and women in all of creation were created in God's image. Your cat and your dog was not. And I love my dogs, but they're not created in the image of God. So we need to go back to the word of the creator at creation as the authority and sufficiency in describing manhood and womanhood. Made by God, for God, in God's image. You might feel awkward about identity, about gender roles. You might feel all sorts of different things. I don't know who's in, in this room. You might be asking questions or people might be asking questions of you, but your feelings and questions don't define your identity. God's intention at creation does. And so like Jesus, first thing, we return to God's word at creation as our foundation for manhood, womanhood, and marriage, which leads to truth number two is that God created fixed binary sexes. God created fixed binary sexes. Back to the words in the scripture, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So Jesus is emphasizing there are two sexes involved in a marriage because he's you know, talking about marriage and there are only two sexes in creation and they are fixed, fixed. From the beginning, he made them male and female. God did this. He designed binary sexes and he designed their form and frame. So in here today, you are either male or female. There's no in between. You, you hear a lot of talk nowadays about your gender being different from your birth sex. And so what they've done with the language is they've, they've divorced gender and sex. In other words, people are saying that you might be born male, that's your sex, or they would call it sex assigned at birth. Note the language, sex assigned at birth, that's the phrase. But your gender is something you can choose later. Gender is a social construct that is on a spectrum. Transgender represents a rejection of what is called a gender essentialist vision of humanity. In transgender ideology, gender is not fixed and formed. It is fluid and formless and interchangeable. Transgender ideology also introduces a third category. They want to smash the binary, fixed binary senses, uh, sexes because they want to introduce this third category to human bodily identity. And the third category is the transgender person who is neither traditionally male nor female, gender fluid or non-binary it might be called. But what does the Bible say? Is there a third category? You see, if they, if they can, if they can uh, if, if, if this agenda can establish that there's a third category, the floodgates are open, barn doors are open. But I think in the text we have before us in Matthew 19, Jesus helps us because he speaks about eunuchs. Look down there in, in verse 12. Verse 12, if you've got the text in front of you. For there are eunuchs who, number one, have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who, number two, have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who, number three, have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Is there a third sex? No. A eunuch was someone who lacked the ability to procreate, not someone who was sexless. In Matthew 19, they were castrated males, that is, made eunuchs by men. They were men who had made themselves eunuchs, that is, they devoted themselves to the kingdom and set aside marriage and thus the possibility of procreation. And they were those who were born eunuch. That, that is not sexless. These are biological males who do not have the ability to procreate for whatever reason. We might call this condition intersex or 
hermaphroditism with those ambiguous genitalia and it's a very uh, small percentage and, and a lot of compassion for uh, parents who have children with that condition uh, needs to be given but there is and there's genetic um, uh, malformations there but they will either be male or female the decision uh, is is one that parents should not rush into quickly but seek counsel and advice and where there is um, a Y chromosome it is uh, very key to pointing towards male. So what Jesus says here actually maintains his assertion of binary sexes a few verses earlier. Male and female, he made them. So no matter what you feel, he made you male or female, and he knows best. The creator knows what his beings, his human beings were made for. So we need great sympathy for many who struggle with confused feelings. And we must remember that we live in a fallen world with fallen sexual desires, and then we must lovingly point people to God's word for salvation and then sanctification. So we remember then that God's word makes us new and then reorders our desires, even though the fight against sin will continue. And I've written three books that are in the, um, in the bookstore. Uh, what does the Bible teach about lust? What does the Bible teach about homosexuality? What does the Bible teach about transgenderism? And in it, I bring out an example of someone I've pastored in my own congregation with these particular issues, lust, homosexuality, transgenderism, and the amazing power of God's word to save and to transform desires in a person. When Adam and Eve sinned, they immediately covered up their naked bodies. They were ashamed when before they were naked and unashamed. Here is the beginning of body dysphoria of different kinds. Ever since the fall of man, men and women have had simple disenchantment with the body. The body God gave them. You might feel certain things about your body. You might want to be a bit taller, a bit longer legs, whatever, a bit better looking. But rather than having your body changed to suit your mindset, you need your mindset changed to fit your body. God is telling you something about who you are by the male or female body he gave you. So be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You don't go and get surgery to change that body. Your birth sex is the gender you are. You don't choose. God does. He made two sexes fixed, male and female. And you know what he says? Genesis 1.31. It is very good. It's very good. Truth number two, God created binary sexes, which leads to truth number three, God created complementary sexes, there's that word. I'll read the text again from Genesis 1.27 that Jesus refers to in Matthew 19. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular, male and female, he created them, plural. In that one statement, in that one statement, there is equality and difference. So all of us in the room today, both men and women, bear God's image fully. It doesn't mean that God is male and female. He is spirit and not body, though Jesus became a man and still has this resurrected body of a man. But God is one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The members of the Trinity are equally God, but different persons. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. One functions as the Father, and the other functions as the Son. In other words, God is Trinity one and three, so God loves the complementarity of unity and diversity. And there's something reflected, very vaguely analogous to it, but reflected in man created male and female in his image. One species, two sexes. Important for us to understand. Equal in value, wonderfully different. And so we need to celebrate these differences. You see, even from creation, watch, you have two, you have fixed binary sexes that are also uh, dimorphic. That is that they have sexually differentiated bodies. Straight after Genesis 1.28, uh, sorry, 1.27 is Genesis 1.28. And what is the instruction? Be fruitful and multiply. So this then takes the two of them, they have to come together and multiply. God's Intention from creation, from marriages, is to produce children. And the command to procreate 
isn't arbitrary. It's the means by which man spreads his dominion throughout the world and rules it and images forth God as the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of God. And this is Biology 101, folks. Just looking at the age I've got in here. But I've not got time to explain it. It's very clear. You need a human man and a human woman to make a human baby. End of my biology lesson. It's a heterosexual and complementary union that's undeniably in view. Equality and difference evident from Eden onwards. So we need complementary, equal and different sexes for the reproduction of the human race. Two men together or two women together cannot make life, but a man and a woman can. And isn't it beautiful in God's wisdom that at their most physically different points that the man and woman can come together and make life? So it's important to remember that sexual differentiation flows out of creational male-female differentiation. We need that. We need to be rooted in creation and so that the, the differences bodily, and I'll get on to the differences of roles, flow out of creation ordinance. So it's not just something we add on. This is important for us to have a robust understanding of it from creation. So it will stand you in good stead of the onslaught from the culture that will be telling you differently. So there are clear physical differences between us. And so we should act and dress accordingly and appropriately to display this. Men should act and dress like men and women like women in culturally appropriate ways. Um, if you're in Scotland, you wear a skirt, okay, it's a kilt. The pretty manly guys there or Maasai tribes in Africa, pretty manly guys there. But you will find in each of those cultures, the men's attire and the women's attire in general is differentiating. This is what God wants. This is what God wants. He wants this creation differences to be differentiated in what we wear. Men and women are physically different. It may surprise you to know that men on average have uh, over a thousand percent more testosterone coursing through their bodies than women. And some of you guys might not be feeling that right now at this time of day, that a thousand percent more testosterone. Are you sure? Men on average, on average, can lift more weight than women. On average, perform markedly better in combat situations. On an average, far, run faster than women. So that Usain Bolt, remember Usain Bolt, ran so much faster than the top women sprinter. Or you see the power of uh, the, the, the men's tennis, for instance, where the, the women, are, I love watching women's tennis, but they, they have the best of three sets. The men have the best of five sets. The women's top uh, serving speed might be 120 miles an hour. The men's is 140. Uh, physically, women are stronger in other ways. They generally live longer. They give birth. Like to grow a baby, give birth to a baby, and then nurse the baby. Like guys, if, if it's up to us, it's the end of the human race, right? We know that. We know that. You, we, we know about, you know about the man flu, right? We get the man flu. So we get flu, we're done for two weeks. You know, I just need to lie on my bed. I need to be, you know, I'm going to get right. I've got the flu, you know. You know women can battle through. So there's different kinds of strengths is what I'm getting at. But we're not just physically different. Adam and Eve were made functionally different in this complementary way that they relate to each other. We see it in the order of creation. Adam was made first and then Eve. So you see down in Genesis 2 verse 7 that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and then breathes into his nostrils a breath of life and he becomes a living creature. And then down in verse 18, he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Man made first and then the woman. She is from the man and for the man. Interesting that the man is made from dust of the ground, but the woman is taken from the rib of his side. So even a difference in the way that they were brought into existence. And he brings her to him. He needs a helper fit for him or suitable to him or corresponding to him. One who is equal to him and yet fits him. Eve's role is a helper fit for Adam. She's in the image of God, the same as him. Equal value, yet she's different for him. She's created after him. She is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. So there's equality, but she's bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, indicating there is an order that he came first 
And this is played out then in how they relate. The realm of thought in Genesis 2 is not God bringing a leader to Adam, but bringing him someone to lead. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul builds on Genesis 1 and 2. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Not the case that she's less than him, but clear that she is to come alongside him and assist him in displaying God's image to the world. And they fit together in that leader and follower uh, relationship. It's based on order of creation, not the competency of the man or the woman. It's the argument Paul uses in for male leadership, qualified male leadership in the church in 1 Timothy 2, when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The reason he gives is, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. He gives creation order, not the culture in Ephesus, not any competency of men or women, but the order of creation. That's the, real, the reason for male headship in the household of God, reflecting male headship in the nuclear household. The woman is designed to give and nurture life. The man is designed to protect and provide for life. So, so at the heart of manhood, you, you know, there are different definitions, but there's a working definition at the heart of manhood is life-preserving leadership that protects and provides for women appropriate to the relationship that you have. At the heart of womanhood is a life-giving helping and encouragement for men appropriate to the relationship that you have. Can a man ever help? Can a woman ever lead? Of course, but what God wants to display in manhood and womanhood are primary masculine and feminine traits, headship and helpership, neither more valuable than the other, both equally valuable but necessary for harmony and flourishing and glorifying God as men and women. Men and women are different and that is good. They're not meant to be competitors, they're meant to be complements. So that's truth number three. God created complementary sexes and they come together then in a heterosexual union in marriage to be fruitful and then have dominion, which leads to truth number four. We've only got five truths, so we're on the penultimate truth. Truth number four, God created complementary marriage or complementarian marriage to picture Christ and the church. Back to Matthew 19, after Jesus quotes Genesis 1.27, you notice he quotes Genesis 2.24. He moves to marriage, and Jesus says that God made man and woman for marriage as a creation ordinance. After the creation of the woman, he, God says in Genesis, quoted here in Matthew 19, Therefore, because I made a man and woman, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus goes on, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. First, we see monogamy is the creation norm. One man and one wife, not three or more, shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. It's the norm for all marriages. Polygamy is not, adulterous affairs are not, open marriages are not. It's also non-incestuous. The man leaves his family and starts a new one with the woman. He leaves his family of birth and starts a new family with a family of choice. It means that he marries outside of his blood family. That's why Leviticus 18 defines the boundaries. She is, or he is not to be, it says, a close relative. So incest laws, you see, reflects creation norm and re remains today. That's why you'll find in Leviticus uh, 18 and in Deuteronomy 22 5 speaking about transvestitism and a man not wearing a woman's cloak they are in the midst of um, expressions of pagan sexuality and each is arcing back to creation because God wants to preserve that creation order the woman so it's, it's monogamous it's non-incestuous and it's covenantal he is related to the old family relationship by blood, but the new one by covenant. He holds fast to her. That's covenant language in the Old Testament. So God defines marriage, not a culture or a changing law. He defines marriage in creation between one man and one woman. And God does the marriage. I'm doing a marriage. I'm doing a wedding when I get back to Canada in a few weeks. And 
Listen to the text. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So God is the main actor in the marriage ceremony, not the pastor or man or woman or the congregation even. Marriage is God's design and it's God's doing. And that's why it's for life. So permanence is in view. Permanence is in view. And different churches will have biblical caveats, which are allowable for uh, potential divorce, but permanence is in view. He joins the man and woman, so he, only she, he should separate them. That's why in marriage vows, you'll say, till death do us part. Till death do us part. So just as Jesus in Matthew 19 refers to creation in Genesis, 20, Genesis 2 to define marriage, it's interesting, isn't it, that the Apostle Paul does the same in the book of Ephesus, chapter 5 and verse 31, when he explains that this marriage at creation is a picture of God's love in redemption. Because Paul says, quoting the same text from Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he goes on to say, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage at creation, a picture of God's love in redemption. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. And it looks like this, Paul says. Wives are to submit submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And husbands are to love and lead their wives as Christ loves and leads the church. In other words, it's, it's not marriage in general designed to reflect Christ and the church. It's marriage of this kind with a, a Christ-like male headship and a, and a church-like wifely submission. That's the kind of marriage God designs to reflect the marvelous reality of the gospel. Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. And one day, that reality will come to It's completion, and we will have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so you see, marriage and creation is a picture of God's love and redemption, which leads us all the way to consummation. See how important maleness, femaleness, and these roles in marriage are. They point to magnificent theological realities. So truth number four, God created complementarian marriage as a picture of Christ and the church, which leads to truth number five, if I get through this quickly, we, we may have a chance for a couple of questions. Truth number five, God created sex good within marriage, but bad and ugly outside of marriage. That's my own little phrase, the good, bad, and the ugly. Jesus says they're one flesh in marriage. Adam cries out, Eve is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And in that way, they have a, a one flesh bond in that sense that she came from him for him. And the one, but the one flesh union of the man and woman in marriage is also about a sexual union. And the sexual union is a celebration of the covenant commitment they have for each other and points to the covenant commitment that God has for his people. So when people say to you, Jesus doesn't say anything about homosexuality, you say, yes, he does. He tells us implicitly that the only appropriate place for sexual relations is between a man and a woman in marriage. So that any thinking, speaking, acting, touching that is outside of that prescription is sinful which cuts out all sexual immorality, heterosexual or homosexual. See, if we just stick to God's word at creation, we'd all be all right. Very simple. But then there's sin, right? This one flesh union is nothing less than sexual and represents the union of the whole person with the other in marriage. Isn't it interesting? At creation, she is taken from him for him. At marriage, they come back together and in that one flesh union... They combine again. Beautiful God's design. Really wonderful. So sex is not a one-off act or an urge to be satisfied. It creates and consummates and celebrates union. And in this way, the human race procreates, spreads and sustains. Sex is good. It is right. But you must know what it is for. If you use it outside of God's prescription in biblical marriage, it is not good. It is indeed bad and ugly, and it is dangerous. In marriage, it affirms spiritual truth and makes human life. Outside of marriage, it tells a lie, and it brings destruction. Amazingly, through God's redeeming grace, even when that's happened and children have been born out of wedlock, he can redeem the years, and he can change situations and circumstances for his glory. So his arm is not shortened. So hear that even in the description of God's 
word on marriage and sex. So you honor God by as much from abstaining from sexual activity outside of marriage as you do by partaking of it in marriage. And the hookup culture among teens, the pornography epidemic that affects the visible church, not just the culture, the visible church, the redefinition of marriage in the culture, it all swims against God's good design for sex. So it's normal to desire marriage and have a uh, an attraction, as it were, towards the opposite sex, but God has supreme rights over our bodies, and he creates us as sexual beings with sexual desires and gives us behavioral guidance for how to use those desires. That's truth number five. Sex is good within marriage, but bad and ugly outside of marriage. So truth number one, Jesus' foundation. Uh, for manhood, womanhood, and marriage is God's word at creation. Truth number two, God created fixed binary sexes. Truth number three, God created complementary sexes. Truth number four, God created complementary marriage, picturing Christ and the church. And truth number five, sex is good within marriage, but bad and ugly outside of marriage. But I just want to say this to finish. Married or single here today, we don't need anything from the world to secure a joyful and meaningful existence. Married or single. We simply need to trust Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and new life and then thankfully own God's design for our sex and sexuality. Christ is enough. Christ is enough so that married or single, we lack nothing if the Lord is our shepherd. Jesus says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. That's what we need, friends. Rest peace with God through forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus does that. You know, you, you need to come to him now. Take his yoke. Have new life. The identity you crave is the one you already have. To be a creation of God, made according to his wise design, and loved by a heavenly father who gave his son to make you his own. Amen. Well, that's all out of Matthew 19. Um, I think we've got a, just a few minutes. If anyone has a question or two, I'm happy to take questions. Yes, the lady towards the back. Sorry, I, I didn't quite hear you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I said marriage at creation is a picture of God's love at redemption. That is, the, in the male-female coming together in the union of marriage, bridegroom and, and bride, it is a reflection of Christ the bridegroom who came to win his bride on the cross through his own blood, and come together in that union, as the man and woman come together in a union, bride and, uh, bride and bridegroom. Bridegroom, Christ comes together with his church in union with Christ. And that points then towards the heavenly consummation of the bridegroom with his bride, the church, when he will take us home to be with him united forever. So that in heaven, married couples will not be married because the earthly uh, picture is pointing to the heavenly reality. And when the heavenly reality comes, the earthly picture is needed no more. So that marriage on earth is not ultimate. The marriage in heaven is ultimate. The marriage of Christ and the church. So we teach and we elevate the goodness and beauty of marriage whilst teaching on the usefulness and goodness of the state of singleness and pointing to the ultimate picture of marriage that has creation, redemption, and consummation meaning. So this is why male-female, fixed binary sexes, marriage between a man and a woman is so important. One of the reasons it's so important to maintain is because it impinges on other doctrines as well and blurs that, that picture. Any other questions? Yes, lady at the back. If you could shout, it would help. Yeah. Experience, 
Born this way. Yeah, born this way. Mm. Mm. Yeah. What? Yeah. I, I. I would. I would have to speak to her. But I mean, I'd be. I'd want to ask her what she means by born this way. Is there a gay gene? That's never been found, right? Um, if she's talking about a, a pattern of repeated desires that her son has, um, her, has exemplified from a young age, we have to then deal with it in terms of, but desires are fallen, and we might all have patterns of sinful desires, like we might have a proclivity to anger or to envy, or to, and you know, what do we say now? This is the, if you go, not saying you, but if, and the culture wants to go down that, born this way, not my fault. No, you're not, you're not born gay, you're born sinful, like all of us. And we all need to be redeemed, and then Christ changes our, our desires by, by his grace. If you start going down the born this way, what do you say about pedophiles? Born this way, they can't help it. And now what's happening is, the, uh, they're redefining paedophiles as minor attracted persons. I don't know if you've heard of this. MAPS, M-A-P-S, minor attracted. So they're born this way. They can't help it. They're just attracted in that direction. And so that Twitter, a few years ago, had a platform for paedophiles where they could communicate with one another as long as they weren't sharing images because they needed an outlet, because they're just victims, you see. So the, 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 the ideology is they're just a victim and it's not their fault. There's no agency here in actually... But, but the, the scriptures speak of men who practice homosexuality. There is an actual act that's going on there. It is a willful act. So all that to say is you have the friend who's the scientist and uh, I, I would, you would need to prayerfully seek her an open door for the word. And maybe if you would listen to her talk about her scientific view, so you hear her out, and then take her to what yours is a biblical view. And then just open that word and just say, look, I'll point to a couple of things here. And then really we want to take people to the gospel because everyone, heterosexual, homosexual, everyone needs to be saved. So I, that's why I see this kind of sexual confusion stuff. It's uh, If we're wise Christians. We're looking for hooks to take people, yes, in what they know, male and female, on these sexuality things, to the scriptures and then point them to Christ. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. But what she, what she says and obviously what she is, it'd be two different things. And uh, the church, I've said before, the church that, has, that is affirming same-sex marriage has already ceased to be a church, biblically. The Christ has left the building. If it's affirming that. Slava, we've just met Kazakhstan. This is our friend from Kazakhstan. If you were in there last night, the, the meeting. For the influence of social media now is getting to our kids. And, and the thing is, if you don't teach them this stuff, the culture will. Social media will. The music will. The television programs. Look at every television program on there. The soap operas. The, the main characters, gay, transgender, bisexual. It, it has to be for that soap opera to continue because it must be representative of society. But I mean, that's happening in your, over in Kazakhstan and, and all around the world. So it's not just a problem for us here. Um, but I mean, the good thing is God's not caught off guard and the Bible is sufficient. We think that we live in the worst of times and maybe it's the worst of what we can remember. We can look in the Bible at Sodom and Gomorrah. We can look at the Corinthian culture. There is a reason, you know, it's Corinthianized. We live in a Corinthian culture. And uh, in God's wisdom, great time to save people and plant churches. So we just need to be very 
confident in the word of God. That's why these deep roots need to go down deep so that we can live it out ourselves is a big thing. Living it out. We can be so focused on changing other people, but are we living it out ourselves? In the, and we're living it out with joy. That's the other thing. We need to live it out with joy. Don't be grumpy Christians that have got, you know, we don't like the culture. We don't like anyone. But we look how this works in my purity as a single woman or man. Look how this works in our marriage. I gladly submit to my husband and I respect him as unto the Lord because this is God's good design. And oh, how he loves me and cares for me. And I love my wife and I will die for her and I will cast some vision in our family. And when people see that, they know there's something different. And they see, they're not even realizing they're seeing a picture of Christ in the church and you're Kids are getting evangelized at the same time as they see how dad loves mom and how mom speaks and respects dad. And, and, and then you bring people into your home who aren't Christians, they're friends, and they're seeing the way you act as a family and children honoring parents and obeying their parents. The first time they're asked to do something and empty the dishwasher, not the second or third time, things like that. It just because they see this joy-filled counterculture. The culture out there and those who are embracing its principles is it's spiraling downwards because it's Satan's anti-wisdom that goes against God's wisdom, and God's wisdom works well. And when we embrace God's wisdom as redeemed people by his grace, with joy, we will present a joyful counterculture. And as it begins to go down, and you're seeing it already, they'll say, how and why? And why do you do And you've got open door. I speak around the world on these issues, and let's take the UK. I am speaking to an increasing amount of non-Christians who are saying, it is not right that a man should identify as a woman and compete in women's sports or go into the women's changing room, because they know. They know it's not right, because they know it's from, in, in, in terms of common grace wisdom, it is not right. And, and a, a lot of people will know that, but they're too afraid to say anything in a woke culture that will cancel them if they do. So we stand firm. We live it out with joy. We extend mercy to others whilst remaining firm on, on the truth of God. And, uh, and I'm excited to see what the Lord will do in dark days. I know we've got to move on, but is there any last question? Or if you think of anything, I'm repeating this session, or, and so I'll be around in the afternoon if you've got any. So you go, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.